the gun violence that has been going on. And just as anything, when you pr produce anything that has to do with subject matter that can be controversial, there was a bit of controversies in the posts that were put under. This is all on Facebook. And um, it was even brought up that we live in a society that you really can't discuss these things without people taking it permanent or um, personal, but, and permanent too, but personal. But I was looking at this dilemma that we have in our nation now. We have this nation that there's no doubt about it. It was not necessarily founded by Christians, by born-again believers, but it was founded upon godly biblical morals. You see that. If you go back to Washington, you see scriptures plastered all over the place. And when I say plastered, there's carved in the stone. And you understand where these people, just read the Constitution and you understand where these people were coming from. And so it would be, it wouldn't be a strange thing, especially what they just experienced with England to put into the Constitution that we have. I know it was an amendment, but nonetheless, that we have the right to bear arms, to arm a militia if necessary. But now we have to look at what that militia is. And I can't imagine our founding fathers ever thought of this. The militia that we have today that we seem to be arming is a militia of those who have a seared conscience. It's a militia of those who have no moral compass based upon biblical morals anymore. And we see, because we live in a godless society, as our society has, if you will, pushed God out of that society, we see what we have to deal with today, and we have these dilemmas that are so difficult. We have free speech in this nation, but I can't imagine that the founding fathers thought that they were protecting some of the speech that we hear, even stuff that is presented as being entertainment, some of the, the foul language that is there, the, the pornography that is out there and all. I just can't imagine that they thought our moral compass would go so far off that we would go in that direction. And even a woman's right to an abortion as it is presented. And I can't imagine that they even considered such things when they were writing the Constitution and Bill of Rights and things such as that. We as a nation have suffered spiritual shipwreck. We have. And it's obvious to anybody who has ever read the Bible and we see the direction that things are going. Now we see with Israel how at times they suffered spiritual shipwreck, but God had done a new work and restored them. And there's always the possibility of restoration as well. But we see when a society, when a nation, when they move away from God and God's truth, we see the damage that is done. And we are experiencing that today. Well, there was a man, as we see in, in Psalm 74, in the title, and once again, as I always say, the title is inspired by God. This is a contemplation of Asaph. This is something that Asaph is considering as he's looking at the landscape of his nation. Now, this Asaph is not the one who was King David's worship leader, but more than likely, he was a descendant of him. They pretty much referred to these descendants of Asaph as Asaph, and they were the Levites who were called to lead worship. Now, the historical context of chapter 74, what is being observed is the after effects of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. And so we know that David was around around 1000 BC, but this Asaph was around in 600 
B.C. And so Asaph, a relative of he who led worship, and himself a man, as we look at his heart, and he's looking at the destruction that is there, not just the destruction of the temple, but the destruction of his ministry and his calling. And we see the heartbreak of that shipwreck that God's people have suffered, that spiritual shipwreck that God's people have suffered. So the perspective here is the one who just so desires, he lives to worship God. That's what he has been created to do. That's what he has been gifted to do. Whatever it is that you are gifted to do, that is going to be your passion. That's going to be your desire. You're going to want to do it well, and you're going to want to do it for the glory of God. What happens when you still have that passion about you, but the opportunity is taken away? And so he's observing the destruction done and realizes that this is a hopeless situation. A hopeless situation, a situation that offers nothing for him in the future. He remembers the glorious times of worship, but what vexes his heart is, is this never going to happen again? He remembers the voices of the congregation as they sing out in unity. It's kind of cool to come up here when everybody is worshiping and you can hear the worship of the congregation, but he's realizing that that's going to be no more. He remembers the passions of the heart of the people as they sing out and as truly they worship the Lord, but now is all he sees is destruction. And think of the mind of even just the common Jew of the time, there's no more sacrifice. If there's no more sacrifice, there's no means of covering sin and how can man possibly be right with God? There's no priestly service, nobody to represent us to God and God to the people. Asaph will no longer be able to perform his ministry, but so many others will not be able to perform their ministries as well. In Amos chapter 11, I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse 11, it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Well, that's what Israel suffered. Now, if you recall when we looked at the minor prophets, what does God do when people get askew, when they go off kilter? He, he gives the word. And the people are directed by, back to the word, and the idea is through the following of the word, we get back where we need to be. But what happens when man ignores the word? When man ignores the word, God sends the prophet. It's as if God is raising his voice, sending the prophet, calling people back to his word in the right relationship. And we saw that in the book of Isaiah and the book of Jeremiah and some of the other minor prophets, that that's how God did before. He raised his voice one more time. See, when the people ignore the word of God, when they ignore the voice of God through the prophet of God, then comes the destruction that God has allowed through the nations that surround Israel. And so those who live contrary to God's word will experience a godless existence. And you can bring that back to the shipwreck that we have suffered as a nation. We've ignored the warnings. We've ignored the word of God. We've ignored the prophets or the preachers of God. And I say we, I'm speaking of us as a society. And now God has raised his voice again. He did so on 911. He does so as we see the killings that are going on in our own nation. As we see a lot of these natural disasters are happening in more populated areas, God's wanting to get the people's attention here, that they would turn. They would turn from their evil ways and that they would turn back to him and he would work a healing amongst the people. But instead, it seems like we're going in the wrong direction. As somebody said, it's not 
if another mass shooting is going to happen, it's when the next mass shooting is going to happen. And even again, if you take away all of the guns, there'll be some other means by what is used because this is all about the condition of the human heart as it is apart from God, living as man desires to push God out of the society and live according to his ways and his own understanding, and it's brought nothing but destruction. The historical aspect of the word of God is interesting and even necessary, but as we look at Psalm 74, although we look at it in that light, we also must look at it in the light of what is going on in our lives and in our society today. What is the relationship between the destruction of the temple, the observations of Asaph, and how God relates to us today? Well, what we'll see as far as Old Testament temple, that was God's dwelling place. God desired to dwell amongst his people right out of Egypt. As they were wandering through the wilderness, there was the instruction given to Moses for the tabernacle. Why? Because God wanted to to dwell amongst his people. Now, sin causes a separation. So then we saw the book of Leviticus when the practice of the sacrifice was brought into the people's lives so that there would be a covering for sin and God would continue to dwell amongst his people. Well, what happens when God's people are disobedient to him and to his word? Well, there's that separation and there's that heartbreak, especially of the godly, of the separation between God and his people And as God takes his hand from his people, then hardship enters in and destruction is soon to come. Now, God warned them as they were wandering through the wilderness before they entered into the promised land. He gave them words of warning, these and many others. But in Deuteronomy 31, verses 24 through 29, it reads, So it was when Moses had completed writing the words of the law in a book, When they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. For I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. If today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord, then how much more after my death? Gather to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their hearing and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you and evil will befall you in the latter days because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. Then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. Moses was giving them warning. Why was he giving them this warning? Because he knew the nature of mankind. He knew his own heart and his own rebellion. He saw the people of Israel as they experienced the mighty works of God, but they still ended up turning their backs against him. Once again, just like our nation has today. And so he says... Put this book in the Ark of the Covenant because this is going to be a witness against you that as you keep these things, you'll be blessed. But as you come up against them, you'll suffer curses. And the idea is is that God told you beforehand. And again, look at our nation. You look 
and you see that we're a nation under God. At least we started that way, but as we moved away from God, curses have come upon our nation, and we're dealing with the things that we're dealing with because we, again, as a nation, have turned our hearts away from the Lord. And so the picture for us today, as far as the New Testament temple, make this personal, it's the physical body of the believers. We are the dwelling place of God. Upon our salvation, the Holy Spirit took up residence within each and every one of us. This temple can be desecrated, though, just as the original one was because of disobedience. We are told in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, or it is to be separated. And then he asked, which temple are you? Which temple are we? Are we a temple of idolatry? And idolatry can be so much, but basically what it is, it's that which we have built and set up within our temples, within our minds, within our psyche, whatever. It's those things which are contrary to God. And even if my own way of thinking, if it's contrary to God, I need to cleanse that temple because surely it's going to lead to destruction just as the Old Testament temple was destroyed. That's the example that Paul is using there in Corinthians, the reminder of what happened during, again, in Isaiah and Jeremiah's day as they refused the Lord. And they even set up those idols to those false gods during those times in the house of God. Well, it's the same thing in our way of thinking, as our way of living, as we do those things contrary to the Lord, that we are setting these idols up and we are doomed to destruction. And really what it boils down to is the heartbreak of separation between God and his people. What we need to see in Psalm 74 is the spiritual ruin that can so easily come. And again, I've referred to it as shipwreck. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, I charge, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. God had spoken to Paul somewhere along the line, and other elders as well, of the calling that Timothy had into the ministry. And he says that he was to wage this good warfare. It's going to be a battle. You're going to fight this fight within your own heart and mind because the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit wars against the flesh. But you're also going to wage that fight in the work of ministry. He says that you may wage the good warfare having faith and a good conscience which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. Now he brings up two examples of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Don't really know who Hymenaeus and Alexander are. It's possible that Alexander is Alexander the silversmith, but we don't know that for sure. But I don't think it is because I believe that Hymenaeus and Alexander were once born-again believers, or I should say they were once numbered amongst the born-again believers think they may still have. What does it mean for Paul to deliver them to Satan? Does Paul have the ability to condemn people to hell? No, what he's saying is, take Alexander and Hymenaeus, and I'm putting them outside of the church. I'm putting them outside of the protection of the wings of the Lord. See, as we're in the church and the body of Christ, 
we have available to us all that the church has to offer. All of the spiritual benefits of a relationship with Christ is prayer, fellowship, support, being there for one another. I saw that as I saw people rallying around Donna, people asking me how Maria is doing, people that have visited and, and just ex exercise concern and prayer. But just think, if you blasphemed the name of the Lord and thought it necessary, you know what, you can't come into the church any longer to be put out there. And what are you, is happening when you're being put out there? You're being put out there outside of what the church has to offer. And what are you left to? You're out of the shadow of God's wings and you're left to, well, the desires of the devil as the devil enters in and torments you. It's not about losing salvation. It's about experiencing a godless existence or, if you will, shipwreck. Paul had a man who was with him and served in ministry with him for, I don't know exactly how long because the Bible doesn't say, but this man was a diligent man and this man was a faithful man. Matter of fact, he's mentioned three times in the scriptures, two times he's in the midst of ministry, one time didn't end so well. And Philemon, there's only one chapter, verse 24, it speaks of Mark, Aristarchus, and Demas, and Luke, my fellow laborers. So Demas here is referred to as a fellow laborer, somebody who is doing the work of ministry. In Colossians 4.14, it says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. And so this man, Demas, was with the apostle Paul and had seemingly had a love for the brethren. But then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9-10, through 10, Paul tells Timothy, Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. And so Demas, he was there, but then at some point he became disobedient to his calling some way, somehow, and left. How? What? What, what made the difference? Well, 2 Timothy is one of the prison epistles. And so Paul's in jail, and I think Demas kind of lost faith, kind of lost trust in the Lord a little bit, and he left. And Paul says he has loved this present world. The world became a bigger priority than the glory of God. Remember Samson, man dedicated to the Lord from birth? He's a man who was always going up to the border of the Philistines. He was always going right there. He was always pushing the limits of what God had instructed him to do. And then finally, he started stepping over the line. And what happened there? We know that that led to the destruction. He left the shadow of God's wings. He went after the pleasures of the world, but was left to the deceptions of the devil. He eventually became a prisoner and a slave of the world. Do you remember what they did? They put out his eyes. It was a common practice, not to get too graphic, but you can just imagine as they're holding him. He's lost his strength. His hair was a symbol of his dedication to God. When his hair was shaved off, it's because his dedication to God was no longer there. And those who are not dedicated to the Lord, the Lord does not strengthen. And so they were able to hold him down, and it was a common practice to put out. Well, it was really a common practice for your enemy. You would put out their right eye because it would make it hard. I mean, if you're right-handed and you just had your left eye beat, make it hard to wield the sword, to shoot a bow and arrow. You, wouldn't, you could use that person for labor, but you wouldn't have to worry a whole lot about their rebellion. Well, both of Samson's eyes were put out. And how were they put out? They were put out with a hot poker. Can you imagine? Now, just think of that. Not, not just the pain. I imagine, I've never had that happen, but I imagine it hurts. But 
just as these men now, these men who used to slay thousands of them, but now they're able to hold you. Why is that, Samson? It's because you walked away from the Lord. And just think, as he's seeing that hot poker being taken out of the fire and realize what's going to happen, it's because you have walked away from the Lord. And as his eyes were being held open, and you see that poker getting closer to closer, and you realize what's going to happen, and it's because I've walked away from the Lord. And then, what is the result? The result is the definition of hell, outer darkness. The light, the light is gone. What's the picture here of darkness? A godless existence. And so he had the benefit, if you will, of experiencing that for the purpose of change. And we are left with one last redeeming quality of Samson's. God did use him in one last good and glorious way. And it wasn't that he was able to see again, but you see his heart changed or turned back to the Lord. In Judges 16.30, then Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all of his might and the temple fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. So the dead that he killed at his death were more than he had killed in his life. And so we see all of these things. We experience these things within our own society. Coming back to Asaph, Asaph is making this observation on Israel, who had, I should say Judah, it was the southern kingdom, but really all of Israel because the northern kingdom had been sacked by Assyria as well. And so he says in verses 1 and 2, O God, why have you cast us off forever? Notice the question mark there. Is this going to go on forever, Lord? And we can look at our country and the direction it's going and can ask the same thing. Oh, God, have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance, which you have redeemed, this Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. From Asaph's perspective, all Israel is like poor, silly, and defenseless sheep. He wonders, why has God done this to them? Again, Israel thought that they were special. Even back in Jesus' day, they thought they were special because they were children of Abraham, just based upon who they were. But the problem was who they were. They had hearts that had deceived them. And they thought that they could live a godless life and no repercussions would come about because of it. The backslidden Christian will talk to you for hours of all that he has done for God and how God has cast him off. I would imagine if you sat down with Asaph and you had an intelligent biblical discussion about him, he knows exactly why God has cast them off. Any backslidden person who tries to blame it on God, they do so to their own demise. They do so to try and quiet their conscience, but they know that God does not leave his people when these things happen. It's because his people have left him. Now, from God's perspective, the backslider, Israel was just a foolish, disobedient sheep. We're told as much in Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. So just as Samson, Demas, Hymenaeus, and Alexander, we tend to wander away from who we just sang about, the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd. He keeps us. You can read Psalm 23 and all that he does. Uh, John chapter 10 is where the good shepherd comes from and how he cares for his sheep, but still we turn and walk away. And, and that's what 
Asaph is, is speaking of here. He's asking God to remember these things, but the people should be remembering these things. Remember your congregation, which remember that he has, he should be looking at from their perspective that he has purchased of old. The tribe, we are of his inheritance, which he has redeemed. Mount Zion is the place that he has brought us to, but they have wandered away from him. Why would God need to remember these things? Why is he asking that God would remember these things? I know that Asaph knows that God did not just forget. God chose to remember no more because they chose to remember God no more. We serve a holy God. We serve a loving God. We serve a gracious God, but we also serve a God who's jealous. He's not jealous of us, but he is jealous for us. Our God will not be ignored. He will not be ignored. That's why creation speaks of his existence so that we would not forget. The just shall live by faith. But God has given us certain things that we would be able to look at and be reminded of the faith that we are to have. I was once again looking at the mountains the other day as I was driving and I was sitting because I'm uh, Cucamonga Peak. I had hiked up there one day with a couple of friends and we sat up there and looked out over all the valley just looking at God's creation. So every once in a while I'll kind of look at that peak and remember that I was up there. But when I see those mountains, those mountains just speak volumes to me of the existence of God. When I look at you, when I look at the born-again believer, I'm reminded of the existence of God. I'm going to speak a little bit about that tomorrow in Donna's funeral. It was the existence of God in her life at the point of her death that gave her the confidence and the hope that she had that she would be praising God even in the face of the news that she got. And again, it just reminded me of the existence of God because God never forgets, but sometimes we forget. God may choose to take his blessings from us, but it's always for the purpose of reminding us of who he is. And so the basis of God receiving us into his family was grace, and the basis of God receiving us back into his family, that will be based upon grace as well. Verses 3 through 8, lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations. The enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. Your enemies roar in the midst of your meeting place. That's a kind of like a victory shout. They set up their banners for signs. They seem like men who lift up axes among the thick trees. And now they break down its carved work all at once with axes and hammers. They have set fire to your sanctuary. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. They said in their hearts, let us destroy them all together. They have burnt up all the meeting places of God in the land. And again, this honest look at the state of the situation and again, bringing it into our time, the state of our situation nationally or the backslider individually, whoever it would be, and you just see the temple and all that God's enemies have done to it. Verse 3, there's just simply complete ruin. Just looking at the destruction. Did you see the Bahamas the other day? Well, it's been on the news even today. As the hurricane swept over, it just destroyed pretty much the whole island. Great tragedy, without a doubt. I, I've known lives like that. I've suffered shipwreck just from a momentary even loss of faith. Just that destruction that you see, just the sweeping across. And as things are destroyed, how can anything like that ever be rebuilt? 
How could the temple ever be rebuilt? How can a life that has walked away from the Lord ever be rebuilt? There was, well, verse 4, your enemies roar in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their banners for signs. Where there used to be, well, there used to be godly, there's now the godless. And you can look at the individual life where there used to be that which was of the Lord, there is that now that is of the world. The mouth that had praised God at one time now curses God. The heart that worshipped him now now, now desires to, to worship that which is anything but God. The feet that ran to him can't get far away from him now. And he just sees this change, and this change seems so definite, and it just seems so permanent. Verses 5 through 6, they seem like men who lift up axes amongst the thick trees, and now they break down its carved work all at once with axes and hammers. Remember when Jesus was giving the Olivet Discourse? He was on the Mount of Olives, and just directly, you're almost at the same level. It's a little bit below you, maybe, the Temple Mount, but the Temple Mount is the foundation for where the Temple was built. So when he was given that Olivet Discourse, on the Mount of Olives, looking at the temple, it was this huge temple that was so grand and glorious. And he was talking about its destruction. And, and that's one of the things that was hard for them to fathom, how something so big, how something so massive, and how something so strong and permanent could be destroyed. Well, history bore it out that it was. And that's the idea here from Asaph. He says there's tooling marks of implements used to destroy Ever look into the eyes of an alcoholic, a drug addict, mentally ill, sexually promiscuous person, whoever, and you just saw that something just seems to be missing? Well, something seems to be missing here. It, it's the temple of the living God, this place where we worshiped him. And the born, I'm sorry, the backslide slidden be, believer, the person who is walking strongly with the Lord, you just see that, that something's missing, and it's their conscience that has been vexed. Verse 7, they had set fire to your sanctuary. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. That which is so holy now has been gutted and anything of value have been taken away by the heathen. Remember the fires of, what was it, last year that were up north? Whole neighborhoods were burnt to the ground and there was just pretty much absolutely nothing left. That which used to be a neighborhood that was thriving, that kids were playing at, and families were gathering together. They were working, coming home, and, and, and just doing what, what we so take for granted, and then just one moment of a fire, and it's all gone. Burned out wreckage of a car. I remember there was a car in this field when I was in high school in Brea. I would hike up into the oil fields, and there was always this burnt out car that was back there somebody drove it back there and set it on fire I don't even know how long it had been back there and it was at that time not only was it charred it was also rusted out but at some point somebody said to that car hey look at the you want to see my new car want to go for a drive in my new car and that which was so glorious at one point now is sitting in the middle of the field I don't know if it still is today but it, it's sitting in the middle of the field and it is no longer we were on a retreat up in the local mountains and we went for a hike back in the Big Bear area, back in the area, and we went through a trail. We hiked for a while. We were in the forest and then all of a sudden we came to this open area that there had been a forest fire, I don't remember, like the year before, and it had been gutted as well. And there's just, you just see that which was so beautiful at one time is gone and that's what Asaph is experiencing. Verse 8, they said in their hearts, let us destroy them all together. They have burnt up all the meeting places of God in the land. 
And the idea here is it's too far to ever go back. All the meeting places, any way in which they honored God, all those ways, it seems as if they have been destroyed. Again, take that with those verses that I have read previous and bring that into a comparison with our country as well. Then seemingly, if that wasn't far enough, it's as if they hit rock bottom, verses 9 through 11. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. O God, how long will the adversary reproach? Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? Take it out of your bosom and destroy them. In Matthew 27, 46, Jesus said, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was at that time when the Lord, if you will, it was really one of the most glorious times, but it's as if he had hit rock bottom. It's when the Lord took the sins of the world upon himself. And as he took the sins of the world upon himself, he was experiencing that separation even from himself, if you will, him being God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because sin separates. It's what Asaph is experiencing. It's the separation of the relationship between God's people and God because of the sin that they have committed. It's what we're experiencing in this nation. And take it into the church even. It's the church as we've gone according to the world and the world's ways. We've allowed the church to infest, to infect even the body of Christ. And the church has become more like the world today. And it's because of that that there's been a separation from God and God has taken his hand off of this nation. Anybody desires to live apart from God is welcome to try. The Christian will be able to, but he'll be living the most miserable of lives. They'll still be saved, but once where there was love, there's hate. Where there was joy, there's bitterness. Where there's peace, there's tribulation. Patience, there's outbursts. Kindness, there's envy. Goodness, there's now sin. Faithfulness, there's now abandonment. Gentleness, there's contentions. Self-control, reckless abandon. Fruits of the Spirit have been replaced by the results of the flesh. Proverbs 21:23 says, Turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you, and I will make my words known to you. And so, what can be done? Look at verses 12 through to 17. For God is my king from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Verse 12 would be the turning point here. Because what is he doing? He's looking at the landscape of destruction. We can look at our nation and see how godless it can be, and that can get us down. We can look at the society that we're leaving for our future generations, but all in all, where is our hope? He says, for God is my king from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Now he's, re he's revisiting the power of God. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea serpents in the waters, or sea monsters in the waters, probably referring to some sort of great whale or some sort of great fish. You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness, be something like a rhinoceros, an elephant, some kind of big land animal. You broke open the fountain and the flood. You dried up the mighty rivers. The day is yours. The night also is yours. You have prepared the light and the sun. You have set all the borders of the earth. You have made summer and winter. 
in the Bible bus reading, the one-year Bible, we just finished reading through Job, right? And what happened? There's Job and his friends trying to figure out and make sense of all that's going on in Job's life. And then finally, God enters in in chapter 38 of Job. Who is this that darkens counsel? Basically, he's saying, with your human knowledge of your lack of understanding. And you're trying to bring your wisdom into this rather than just submitting yourself to God. When things happen that we don't understand, Pastor Chuck was fond of saying, we rely upon that which we do understand. I don't understand what's going on in society. I don't understand why people rejected the Lord. I don't understand how somebody can go and just, in cold blood, just just blow lives away. What do I understand? I understand God. I understand the word of God given to me through the Bible that I have here on my lap. And so again, Psalmist 24 was looking at all of these things he didn't understand all the way up through verse 11. And what was there? That only there to meet him was despair. But then he was reminded of God. He was reminded of who God is and what God is able to do. And remember the great promise that we have in Zechariah chapter 11, uh, 1, verse 3. If you start over with me, God says, I'll be faithful and I'll start over with you. We're only repentance away if we have walked away from the Lord. If you've suffered shipwreck, what is it that brings you back afloat? It's coming back to that right relationship with God. We've been looking at that in detail in First, um, first John. Verse 18, remember this, that the enemy has reproached, O Lord, and that a foolish people has blasphemed your name. O, do not deliver the life of your turtle dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have respect to the covenant, for the dark places of the earth are full of the haunts of cruelty. Oh, do not let the oppressed return to shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, plead your own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you daily. Do not forget the voice of your enemies. The tumult of those who rise up against you increases continually. And so if you could talk to Asaph, you could say, yeah, and it's still going on today. And if you could talk to Moses, just as surely as God's people were stiff-necked back then, still stiff-necked today. Stiff-necked would be like trying to lead a donkey, and as you're trying to pull him in a direction, he's stiff-necked. He's, not, he's fighting against you as you're trying to lead him in a good way. He's wanting to go according to his own way. We, like sheep, have gone astray, each desiring to go according to our own way. But the Lord has laid upon, or God has laid upon the Lord, all of our iniquities. He has taken those things and set them as far as the east is from the west. And so where is our hope when we, these things are going on in our society that we don't understand? It's still in the Lord Jesus Christ. God is still in control. Even these hard things, even these things that, that can just seem so beyond us, those are still things that are working together for ultimately his good. We may not see the good until we look at it from the perspective of the dwelling place of God, until we're there with him. But until then, we need to continue on in faith. And God, and even as Asaph saw, in God and what God is able to do, ultimately the power of God. And we must understand that God is going to judge those who need judgment. God's going to give grace to those who have repentant heart. God is still in control, and it's he who we must follow. Take down any idols that are in your life. 
And the worst idol that we can have in our own life is our own way, is our own mind. Allow those things to be destroyed and done away with, that our temples, our temples would be cleansed and God would be glorified through our lives. Father, once again, we just thank you, God, that you have given us this night, this psalm that was written for so long ago, or written so long ago, was for a moment such as we experience even today in our country and in our society. And so, Father, I pray that we would strongly rest upon your word, rest upon and embrace the promises that you have given us. And, Father, I pray that that's where our hope would truly lie. Lord, you have told us that you know the thoughts that you think towards us, thoughts of peace and not evil. Why do you do that? For the purpose of giving us a future and a hope. You gave that promise to Israel as they were in Babylonian captivity, not understanding what's going on. Father, we've got basically the same promises given to us in situations and circumstances that we will not always understand. But the bottom line is, Lord, we know in the end you will prevail. And we know, Lord, that you would take us unto yourself. We look forward to that day. Strengthen us for today, though, Lord. Enable us, Father, for those whom you desire to pull out of the fire, that, God, we would be used to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please?